Hello and welcome to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moeed Amin, and the goal for this show is essentially to help salespeople and anyone who's involved in business in the science and art of persuasion. Uh, if you want to get anything done and if, you're, if your dream or your journey or your mission is big enough, you're going to need people with you along the journey, whether those are clients, stakeholders of various kinds, including investors, employees, partners, anyone who's, who you need to be involved. So the goal of this show is to help you do that. And we go beyond just the usual conventional sales approaches. You know, we talk about everything related to the person who is the salesperson. And success is not just about the skills or knowledge that you acquire. It's about the person that you become. So we've had experts on the show that come from uh, talk about functional medicine and health in relation to how you focus in sales, to human behavior, to personal branding, to body language, you name it. If it's involved in helping persuade, then we'll have that person on the show. And recently I've been thinking about quite a few important things related to sales that have really been coming up with not just the clients that I work with, but also the community that I've been involved with. And one of the, one of the big ones is around, you know, how we as salespeople demonstrate value. You know, it's a topic that is covered in, in a huge amount of detail by conventional wisdom. And yet salespeople seem to struggle in communicate, communicating value in a way that really resonates with the buyer. And actually, that's why I invited out today's guest on the show. In fact, he's a highly experienced chief revenue officer with, you know, experience spanning over 30 years. And he's worked at companies like IBM, Microsoft and Pegasystems. And he's currently the uh, head of managed services uh, for Konica Minolta UK. Now, I met our guest during um, a sales leadership conference or network that we're a part of. And I was highly impressed with his modern and kind of no sense approach when it comes to um, selling. And we talked about various aspects of sales and, you know, what really makes a salesperson successful in our modern day. So things like demonstrating value, you know, the sales tech stacks and you know, how do you create a powerful go-to-market approach? So I'm excited for this discussion, and I know you will be as well. There's a lot of information that we're going to be talking about. So please have your, your notebooks and pens ready. So please help me welcome someone who is also a passionate supporter of various animal welfare and human rights associations, Mr. Russell Palmer. Russell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Maid, for that. those kind words. Um... It's uh, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to be invited on onto the show, and uh, I hope we can uh, we can get into some of those topics that you uh, were talking about just there. Yeah, I I hope we we can uh, make some of our viewers and listeners uncomfortable because uh, I I typically invite people who really go against conventional wisdom, but what they talk about really kind of relates to the science and the research that I've conducted as well as countless others have done. So, actually, I, I saw a recent post of yours where you talked about hybrid working model um, and uh, you actually were talking about kind of the, the, your observation on the best days and uh, of the week in which, you know, colleagues should kind of come together and meet. What are your thoughts about hybrid working, especially in the sales profession? We've all experienced the, the, the shift and the change that uh, really were precipitated by the pandemic and the various lockdowns that, that that we went through in and have been going through the last couple of years. I think it was probably exacerbating a shift that was underway in any case. I think a lot of us were already kind of doing 
various versions of, of, of remote and, and hybrid working. But certainly, as you referred to that, that post, I think it was um, a study published by a company called Brandwatch, where they'd done some surveys around, you know, days of the week that people prefer to go into the office physically. Uh, and no surprise, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, the most the most popular days. And uh, as, a, as a leader of, of, of a, in a company surveying various employees, exactly the same results uh, came out. So, but when I think about that, from the perspective of a seller, what does that mean? How has that changed? Of course, it changes in a number of ways. It gives us challenges in terms of how we collaborate with our colleagues, you know, first and foremost, because we know that B2B sales, uh, it, you know, the cliche, it takes a village. You can't do it as, you know, on your own as a, as a seller. And so you have to collaborate with with peers. And a lot of the stuff that we talk about that, you know, you you mentioned before, which is sort of how do we understand value how do we communicate how do we build value for for our customers that takes a lot of collaboration and and that's really best done face to face so planning that is important but i think you also have to think about the fact that because of preferences today that you've also then got to take into account that at least somebody may be remote so you know a lot of the kind of remote collaboration tools that are now available are really, really good for, for, for doing that sort of thing. But there are also other studies, and I think there's one by Gartner, that show that, in fact, B2B buyers are you know, really happy not to be taking face-to-face -face meetings from sellers. You know, many of them prefer not, not to do that anymore. And so, of course, again, as sellers, that gives us, gives us a, a, a real challenge. And it means that as a seller, you've really got to try to optimize for what I think about as more, not necessarily remote selling, but asynchronous selling. Of course, face-to-face -face, by definition, it means you're speaking to somebody in real time, synchronous. But being remote and hybrid means actually gives you an opportunity to always be in contact somehow, but in an asynchronous way. So you've got to try to use that to your advantage. You've got to see, okay, well, instead of trying to organize the next meeting and shuffling around with schedules to try to get eight, 10, 12 people in the same room at the same time, you can say, well, fine, we don't have to be physically in the same place, but we can at least, if we're at the same time, we can have that conversation and you can record things, right? Which can be replayed later. So it means that people who aren't there can, can do that, which means that you can reduce the time between meetings, which actually, when you look at the sort of uh, amount of time it takes, for a specific meeting versus the time between those meetings, the time between is a significant factor in terms of your the length of your sales cycle. And all of this stuff is really demonstrated fantastically well by um, Jaco van der Kooi, who is uh, with Winning by Design. He's, he did a webinar on this. I think you can get it on, on YouTube. Um, and he goes into the maths, the science behind you know some of this and the impact it could have on your the length of your sales cycle shortening and in fact, the, 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 your win rate of, of, of opportunities. So it's definitely worth looking into, but I think that there are some pretty simple things you can use. Uh, there are a lot of tools around now to help with this, and uh, you have to really think about things slightly differently for this asynchronous selling versus relying on the old method of organizing a face-to-face, -face, showing up, you know, walking the halls, I think is a, is a, is a phrase we, we used to use a lot and, you know, it's not quite as easy to do that anymore. So you have to be a little bit more creative uh, uh, to do that. And I think the last element, which all of us um, 
and really connects back into the key theme here, which is being using asynchronous as a as as a mechanism here is one thing, but you've also got to remember that you have to be bringing value to your buyer to those decision makers all the time. It's not good enough to say, oh, you know, we did the meeting, it was on Zoom or whatever, here's the recording. And then just sending them an, an email every every week or so after that saying, you know, so have you made a decision yet? You know, when can we talk again? Kind of thing. You've Every time you contact them, you've got to bring some other element of value to them. Otherwise, in the end, they just ignore you because you're noise, right? It's just easy to skip past that email, ignore that phone call, um, and you can go weeks without any contact at all. And the big part of that asynchronous approach that you talked about is obviously, you know, selling through virtual means or non-face-to-face -face means. You know, even though it's been two years since we've had to be able to do that, when you think about the span of the journey of the salesperson and sales skills, it's still it's still a you know a, a, a minute time within the whole yeah. period, and it's still and something that we all have to get used to. Particularly, I think, and this may be an assumption. Well, it's not a massive assumption. We've we've observed this, and this is empirical evidence. But with the older generation, the more experienced salespeople, it's still relatively new, and I think it's taking them generally not everyone longer for them to kind of adapt and become as good at that as they probably would have been in face-to-face -face. how have you seen some of the best sellers kind of adapt to virtual selling you know what are the things that they're doing in order to be successful in that medium i think what i have seen is there there are a couple of things the first is i think you just touched on it there a second ago which is that speed of adaptation, you know, the old mechanism doesn't work or doesn't work as well anymore. So what are the new mechanisms? And, and, and I've, you know, alluded to a couple of times that there are such a huge range of digital tools now available to you where, you know, simple things like, what do they call them? Digital sales rooms. So essentially you put all of the materials that are relevant to this conversation between yourself as a seller and your, your decision makers, the buyers in one place. So they don't have to go and hunt around. They don't have to go and look on your website for the case studies. Maybe there are some things in there, some documents you've created specifically for them. They're all in one place. And that's good because it makes it easy for the buyer. It makes it easier for you as a seller because a lot of those tools give you the capability to, to see who has accessed that content. When did they do it? How long did they send, they spend doing it? Did they share it with somebody else? Even when you share, for example, a presentation, how long do they spend on each slide within the presentation? So you can start to get some sense of where are their interest points or potentially, you know, objections that they may be bringing up to in your next conversation. So this is, this is you know, using tools like this, I think, is a really good way to start that adaptation uh, process. I think one of the other ways I've seen, and I will be totally transparent here, learning this from sort of, uh, let's say, a younger generation of, of seller to, to certainly myself in any case, is a much less formal way of interacting with buyers. You know, uh, uh, just the way that, you know, written communications are done, just the way that, you know, even face-to-face real-time or, 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 you know, uh, remote real-time conversations are, are held. The fact that you and I today are wearing, you know, fairly casual, you know, uh, uh, clothing because, you know, the, our work environment is, is very different. So I think customers are changing in the same way. So what, why wouldn't we change uh, as sellers as well? Uh, and I've certainly seen 
that you know been accelerating and i've seen that customers respond well to that those virtual rooms that you mentioned where you can share documents and everything's in one place how, how i'm interested how have you seen buyers respond to that because uh, you know i would assume that some buyers because it's new technology there's that period of familiarity and some of them may not enjoy using it or may not even try to use it and so the very thing that you're trying to use to create that closer engagement may actually work against you. So uh, have you seen any kind of observations around how buyers respond to that kind of technology? Yeah, I would say it's varied. Certainly my own personal experience has been that it's varied. Some some buyers just adapt to it straight away. They're really happy. And, you know, you, you see that they're downloading the, the, the content and, and those sorts of things. Some of them never go and take a look, you know, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And I suppose that might be a message in itself, right? In terms of it, it, do they have enough interest in, in what you've been talking about to go and take a look at the content that you're pointing them towards. I think as we're talking about sellers adapting over the course of time, I think buyers will also be adapting over the course of time. And I mentioned, um, you know, a few moments ago that a lot of buyers, a lot of decision makers, uh, their preference is to no longer have face-to-face -face meetings or to have fewer face-to-face -face meetings with sellers than perhaps that they were uh, that they needed to do before, and that's fine. We're we're accepting that as sellers, and and we're adapting to that as sellers. But I think that let's say the price that they may pay for that choice is that they have to then also engage with sellers using these kinds of new digital tools because otherwise, you know, how do they how do they get what they need, right? Of course, the assumption there in that statement is that the buyer hasn't already made up their decision on in what they need and and therefore you know unlike the old days uh, if i could refer to them that way where most of the information their chief source of information was from sellers you know sellers were the experts and in, and educated the buyer in terms of the problem space and the solutions and all of those sorts of things whereas now of course you can get that information pretty much anywhere um, and a lot of buyers uh, will already have done that research before they get into any kind of contact, you know, face to face or not with the seller. So it's a complex landscape. But, you know, as ever, we, we kind of do the dance, don't we? So. <laughs> OK, no, fair, fair. I think there's there's a camp also that almost say, well, you know, I'm the buyer. You kind of I dictate the terms almost. You need to get used to me. Uh, yeah. If I'm not going to if I'm not going to ingest your information through that medium, then, you know, forget about it. You either do it my way or or that or it's the other way. So I'm just wondering, how would you how would you a salesperson deal with that or at least recognize the fact that you're facing someone that, um, you know, doesn't probably want to use those rooms, those virtual rooms, as, as you're suggesting, because we as we in sales, sometimes we're, we're almost bred to be quite I don't want to use the word domineering or that that can be the case, but it's almost you know, trying to push the method down to the buyer, we tend to be inflexible. But when I say we, I, I kind of mean in a not a generalist way, but there's a large majority that are. So have you found salespeople who very kind of very cleverly identify the type of individual they're speaking with uh, and whether they will use such things? Do they just ask them op openly and outright or do they test them with some, with some kind of... Um, I don't want to use the word ordeal, but almost a, a kind of a tester to say, well, you know, if they answer it this way, then they're not going to really use this. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've seen anybody do that explicitly. Certainly, you get a you get a you get an early sense, right? Where you, in terms of if you if you use one of those 
those tools, those digital tools, and you get the response, you get the customer, the buyer engages pretty quickly, you know, within a couple of days or something like that, even if it's just a quick look, then you know they're at least they're open to the concept, not necessarily that that's going to be the chief mechanism, but they're open to the concept. I think the experience that I've had, which is perhaps a little bit different, is where I've not seen the engagement. It's been because the buyer, the decision makers, it's not on their priority list, right? So it's not because they don't like the method or the the, the, the way of doing it. It's because they're doing something else entirely. Um, and of course, that's a you know that's a message in in, in itself um, that you then got to say, okay, well, is this a good opportunity for me? Am I talking? You know, all the usual qualification type things that we should be asking ourselves. This is just another indicator. But I think your point is valid. I think that to keep a, a, a an eye open for somebody that may be resisting the use of of those tools uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, might be something that you have to keep in mind. You raised something about, you know, qualifying. And although it's not a new skill that's being taught, right? And uh, there are a lot of frameworks out there and acronyms around qualifying. And yet I've observed, and tell me if you're seeing this as well, you know, salespeople still sometimes struggle to get the right balance for how and when to qualify are you seeing the same and and if you are what are some of the good ways that you're seeing it being applied within teams so i, th I suppose the short answer for when should it be applied is always right <laughs> always be qualifying i mean i i've always thought that is what might have been a good opportunity at the beginning of the conversation the beginning of the cycle doesn't mean that it will always be a good opportunity. Things change, right? Things change certainly at the, at the buyer's end. Things may even be changing at, at, at the seller's end. So constantly qualifying to make sure are we talking to the right people? You know, is this still a priority for them? It uh, is, is clear. So I think that what I like about some of the frameworks, um, you know, there's been a resurgence, I think, um, in 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 a couple of them. <clears throat> you know things like medic and so on uh, which has been around a long time there's been a there's a my my sense is anyway that there's been a kind of resurgence in, in using of the methodology and you know it's a good it's a good methodology you know i've um, i've i've used it it's 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 a good methodology but i think that world has changed in a, in a couple of key ways that make those sort of let's say more rigid methodologies a little bit less useful one is of course what we've already been talking about is that you know buying behavior is is very different uh, today and the, the tools available to buyers are, are are very different the second is that many of those qualification frameworks i think were uh, built and 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 refined you know during the during the time when essentially you were either selling hardware related products uh, to customers or you were selling perpetually licensed software to to, to customers. In both of those circumstances, there is a sort of fairly defined sales cycle and a very defined endpoint. We we say, you know, here's the contract, money changes hands, product gets shipped, physically shipped, and, you know, we're, we're done till, till the next one. And so th that's a kind of linear cycle. I think today, particularly with software as a service, recurring revenue, managed services, yes, there is that kind of process and there is that contract point but that isn't the end of the story. You have a life cycle, a lifetime, if you like, with those customers, during which time you have to continue to, to, to uh, demonstrate value to them, 
Uh, and of course, you are continuing to sell to them. You're continuing to sell to them for the renewal. That's job number one. And you're continuing to sell to them for the expansion and the upsell. So the qualification process is also continuing. And I think some of the other frameworks um, that are around and are developing um, are perhaps a little bit better suited to that, which is kind of more around outcome driven, you know, uh, qualification and uh, that con continuous sort of test uh, approach. Which, which frameworks are you referring to when you talk about some of the newer frameworks? Yeah, I mean, I like Challenger as a sales methodology. There isn't necessarily a, a, a qualification uh, framework as such with that, um, but there are definitely, you know, some some approaches in Challenger which give you those clues as well, particularly around the, how decisions are taken um, mm. in in a group environment. I do find Challenger to be perhaps a little bit academic. Uh, you know, um, I, I like the academic nature of it, but I think it's difficult to put into practice in a in a fully functioning sales force. And so I, I like um, uh, gap selling as well uh, uh, from uh, Keenan, where, you know, I I, I, I think gap selling is, is very similar in concept to the challenger sale, but just a little bit more applicable to day-to-day -day selling. Um, and so I, 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 you know, I really like the, the, the gap selling approach as well. There's, there are a few others, which, and I think like, like everybody, you kind of pick the pieces that seem to make the most sense for the environment in which you, you know you're working i mean i haven't actually read gap selling but my um theory of that is it's around the kind of value-based selling almost you're selling on the delta right the bigger the delta you're using that number to therefore justify the expense right so if the delta that you've quantified is a million pounds and if you're asking someone for a hundred thousand then you've got a 10x value there yeah. and demonstrating value is something that is so important in the sales process and i think salespeople as a whole and and, and when i say as a whole I, I do mean the majority and it is a large majority actually they, they struggle to do so now i i have some strong views on on demonstrating value from my research and the interviews i've done with buyers but i really wanted to get your thoughts on this because you wrote a post on this and and you shared your your kind of gripe around how sellers are demonstrating value and when they do so it's often misaligned with how buyers perceive value and and so it sounds as if we're kind of uh, some sellers are failing at this at even a basic level which is we're just complete we're talking two different languages here so can you just share a bit more about that about your perspective then really keen to understand from you you know where have you seen salespeople do it well you know what are the ingredients of you know delivering a powerful value demonstration or, de or demonstrating value yeah i mean it's a it, it is a very deep topic and i think that you know sort of if i if i try to kind of summarize the way that i think about this it it was kind of distilled for me when i was talking to um another cro who who, who i who i know have known for a very long time and have worked with on a number of occasions and he he made the point to me he said look you know we we talk about sales journeys right the selling the selling journey we talk about your, your your sales cycle the selling journey and and even if you're a little bit more enlightened you might talk about matching the buying the selling journey to the buyer's journey and 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 so on and he pointed he said buyers don't set out to buy anything right they set out to solve business their business problems they don't want to buy anything and so if you have to if your your start point is there it really does help you to reframe how you think about, you know, the value. It is a kind of cliched story about the guy in the hardware shop looking for a six millimeter drill. 
and the you know the hard the, the the shop assistant saying well we've got these different types and these different you know metal that they're made from and all that kind of stuff and you know but this one's a bit cheap and so you know that that's a very kind of seller centric perspective in reality he's not looking for a six millimeter drill he's not even looking for a six millimeter hole he's looking for a bookshelf in his study to put those you know pile of books that are on the floor that's his problem he didn't set out to buy a drill but that's the problem he's trying to solve you see so and I, th that's what I try to think about when I think about value. And I think the the post you, you, you're referring to was actually prompted by somebody else posting about, you know, the value that, that, that buyers see. And as a sales leader, I often hear salespeople talk about, you know, a particular opportunity. Um, and they'll say things like, oh, well, I was talking to so-and-so over at the prospect and, we, you know, we've gone through that. And so you know, they see the value in what we're talking about. But and when I hear that phrase, I just know that they've to totally missed the point, right? The seller has totally missed the point because if they're summarizing their response from the buyer that they see the value, why is there a but after it? Do you see what I mean? So what it means to me is that the customer has said yes and even agreed to what we as a seller have told them, you know, I've got this fantastic thing, this fantastic offer solution. It, it'll do wonders for you. It does all of these things and it saves all of this money. You know, do you agree? Customer goes, yes. He said, well, okay, they've seen the value. Well, no, they've seen the value as we've described it. They've not seen the value to them in terms of, you know, the books on the bookshelf in the study. Uh, so, you know, I think that thinking about value that way. And I'm always trying to think about, okay, what is the problem here that this, you know, buyer is trying to, to, to solve for? What does that look like? What does it feel like to them? And then how can I materially impact that with what I'm doing? And how can I relay that to them in a way that they can understand that and match those two things together in their own minds? Because there's no point me matching it together in my mind because I'm not taking the decision. Did that answer your question I can't yeah, it did it did and and, and the question that come, and, and I'm thinking about all the times where I haven't done this well right and and none of us are perfect you know I still mm -hmm. remember a call you know last week where I, I didn't deliver the value in you know on reflection in the way that I should have but I'm I'm I would like to think that I'm more aware so I'm, I'm I always reflect on on every interaction that I have we all know the principle of understanding the outcome. We all kind of know the principle of understanding, look, there is a problem here that we are, that this buyer is trying to solve. And we are one of several possible solutions. And actually what we should be asking are questions around the problem rather than, you know, going down the solution situation. Why do salespeople struggle to do that then and to ask those kind of questions is it a lack of skill is it the you know the the kind of stressful and linear environment in which they are within in a company right where the sales leader or, or the or the business leaders even the investors can sometimes they're very just one track mind very linear and therefore it forces us to be linear in our well in our way of approaching things why do you what are your thoughts and why why you think that we struggle to do so that's a good question I think there are, you know, there are a number of reasons. I think if we can sort of maybe one of the key reasons, and we sort of, I'll use this as a kind of label to, you know, across the whole of the, the whole of the seller organization rather than the seller specifically is, you know, we, we, we tend to sort of do inside out thinking, right? We have our perspective 
on the world. We have our perspective on the problem space. So we tend to talk about ourselves and our offerings, right? So you, you'll kind of phrase things in, in that oh, we've got the we've got the greatest, you know, software for doing this and it does all these things. So we have that inside out thinking and and it's pervasive, right? It's pervasive right from the product team, which you probably would expect given, you know, their job is build build the product. But then in marketing, certainly in sales, and even as you say, you know, in 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 our investor organization and the executive leadership. And of course, we believe our own hype, right? We believe we've got the best thing offering, whatever it is we're 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 selling um, uh, in in the market. I think also that there is a there is a sort of a, a business driver behind this as well. And, and you mentioned it there in terms of in, in investors. And, and I don't I don't mean to kind of single single them out as a as a as a sort of you know subset, but we tend to think about things, and particularly I've seen this today in B2B SaaS organizations. You know, everybody wants to be a unicorn. We know that the way to be a unicorn is, you know, whatever it is, triple, triple, double, 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 which means, you know, when you start to do the maths backwards, you sort of come to some number of MQLs, SQLs, blah, 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 right? And depending on how you're, you, you build your mechanisms, that generally start, starts to translate into how many calls a day, how many emails sent, you know, the, and so you become very, very sort of focused on those very, you know, measurable things, which drives behavior in the seller organization that is inside out thinking, I've got to make this number of calls. The only way I can do that is keep it short and just talk about what I've got and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So, so I think that there's a sort of there's some some thinking we have to do, some changes we have to do to, to 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 change and adapt to that. I think the other thing, and this gets back to what we were talking about a minute ago in terms of B2B selling, probably more probably more accurately, B2B buying has changed significantly, is that we think about, you know, there's still this one key decision maker, right? If I can only get to the CIO and convince them of the value, decision's done and everybody will 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 follow suit. Well, I can tell you from personal experience that even when that was the case, you know, some time ago, I've often, you know, been successful at that sort of convinced the one key decision maker and then had all sorts of trouble once the rest of the organization gets instructed to catch up. Right. So you have to go basically resell to all the people that have to implement it and use it and all that sort of stuff. So it doesn't really help you that much other than you've already got a signed contract. So I think that you've also got to think now about the other people in the decision-making process. And then there are some nuances in terms of how you sort of explain value, because of course we, and again, you know, uh, I think Keenan makes this point quite often as well, is that, you know, we, we, we tend to sell to reason and rationale versus emotions. But actually most of us know, I think as sellers, that people take emotional decisions and then find the rationale to justify it later. But we communicate to the reason part, or it'll save you this much money, it'll be this much faster. And, you know, all of those sorts of rational type decisions, uh, discussions versus the the real things about how is this really going to help you be successful. And the way we communicate as well is a little bit sort of clinical. It's a little bit dry. We don't tell stories very much uh, as, as sellers in, in, in many cases. I remember some years ago, I was speaking at a conference. I had a 10 minute slot. So, you know, <laughs> to be pretty, pretty brief. And I was talking about, you know, a decision engine and an AI product. And uh, I can't claim to have come up with a with a content myself. That was somebody much cleverer in the organization who'd done that uh, uh, than me. But 
basically the the, the pre my presentation was about explaining the complexity involved as a pitcher in a baseball game to understand what might be the outcome of the next pitch you know based on all the variables the you know the type of pitcher i am the weather conditions all of this and if you start to plot this out in terms of first pitch second pitch third pitch etc you start to get all these variables and it was represented in like a color wheel where all the different choices were different colors because it was in a short i had three slides the first slide was a full slide full frame photo of a baseball you know batter at, at at the plate the second slide was this color wheel and the third slide was my contact details uh, and afterwards people came up to me and said oh that was a fantastic you know presentation could you could you give me your slides please and I was thinking you'll get nothing from it other than my contact details and I think the reason is because I told it as a baseball kind of story and you know and it it, it helped get the information the value across in a faster more digestible way and I think that we don't really tell stories enough in in our approach and to help illustrate the you know the value that we that we might bring i feel that we, we can talk about a lot of these topics for a long time i mean stories storytelling is a big one by itself and it's a it's a whole discipline on its own uh, yes. and you're right we don't tell enough stories i mean I, I i certainly don't and i know the power and value of those stories from a neuroscientific point of view just so in the in the last few minutes that we have there is one question i really wanted to ask you which is <laughs> i i noticed that one of your specialist areas is working in, um, you know, in a company where they're the challenger in the market and they're often competing with, you know, big, more well-established incumbent players. And, and a lot of our viewers and listeners are sales professionals and, and even founders of companies in that kind of dynamic. How should they approach their commercial strategy to effectively compete with those kind of bigger companies are, are there some specific you know top five things that you would recommend they should always look at i think from a commercial aspect obviously i mean if, if you really talk about commercials obviously if you're cheaper than the than the incumbent you've got a better chance but um that doesn't always fly even even in that case so i think you know my experience has been that you have to be sharper at everything and by that i mean you know you have to you know, we've been talking about understanding problems. You, you have to be, you have to understand the problems better. You have to be able to articulate that understanding of your bias problems better than the other guys do, right? You have to be better at engaging with stakeholders, uh, you know, and not only this one decision maker, because there isn't one decision maker, that's a fallacy. We, we, we know that. So who are the other decision makers? Who are the other stakeholders? Who are, you know, what do they care about? Uh, because they won't always be in the functional areas to which you're selling primarily right if you're selling it solutions selling to a cio for sure but the cfo is interested in some in 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 that the coo is interested in in some of that stuff as well what do they care about with respect to what you're talking about and being able to communicate that much more effectively is um uh, is one of the the, the the key aspects. I think closely related to that is is buyer enablement. You have to be better at buyer enablement. And by that, I mean the ability of your decision maker, your champion, to be able to gain consensus internally within that broader decision making base, you know, address their fears and concerns and all of those sorts of things so that you don't wind up with, you know, the lowest con common denominator, which is typically 
well, let's push this decision out. Let's not make a decision or, you know, let's let's just stay with what we have or take the cheapest or, you know, some other outcome, which is probably not it, not in your favor. So you, you have to be sharper. You have to be faster and more agile. But, you know, if in smaller companies, that is, you know, inherent in, in, in how they are in any case, because you've got shorter lines internally. So, so that's useful. But I've been I've worked in very big companies where we've been the challenger, where we've been, you know, trying to sort of get a foothold in an established space. Um, and of course, being faster and more agile in a very big company is just a bit more difficult at times. Uh, but you have other you have other levers that you can pull, right? You've got you know access to resources that other companies might not. You've got access to perhaps you know complementary offerings which other companies might not, and you can put those together. And and, and I've used that very successfully um, in the past in in this context. And I think also it's tough, but you've got to have some kind of external validation, right? Whether it's your own credibility, your founder's credibility, people in your organization, you've got a really smart person who invented this thing that you're trying to sell, you know, get them in front of customers, that, you know, that that validation. And of course, you know, the, the usual stuff about your early customers, early adopters, uh, and then, uh, you know, the industry, I think, I've been talking about the sort of changes in B2B buying and decision-making, and a big driver of that is access to information. And, um, you know, as well, you know, access to peers i mean you and i met in a community of peers um and and our buyers are doing exactly the same thing so they're talking to other people that do the same job that they do in other companies and asking them how did you solve this problem which are the vendors that you use so that validation in in those places is is also key uh, for you to to start making that real uh, real inroads it's interesting most of what you said was actually from the buyer's perspective and less about market positioning or uh, you know any of those things actually most yeah. of what you said was from the buyer's perspective so that's that's really interesting because the first thing you said there is you've got to understand the problem the buyer's problem better than anyone else and i think it, it's interesting that you started with that first right is is that yeah and, and, and we we talk about icp's ideal client profile etc but not many people place as much emphasis on identifying the problem in fact when you talked about buyer's journey earlier oftentimes the buyer's journey doesn't start from you know deciding which vendor to work with or deciding which technology to buy the triggers are often problem-based triggers right it's when a problem occurs that's the trigger that you need to be more attuned to hearing and identifying and therefore being able to solve. So I thought that was incredibly interesting that you shared that. This was really useful for me. I mean, I, I learned a lot and I know our viewers and listeners will too as well. A um, couple of questions I want to quickly ask, actually one main one before we wrap up, which is mm -hmm. this question I ask all our guests, which three books would you recommend that our viewers and listeners should read? Or you may say, actually, there are three kind of experts or very knowledgeable people that you feel people should should be following what yeah. would you suggest i already mentioned one i think gap selling from keenan that that for me is a really uh, really useful and and keenan is great at at um you know producing content you know he's very very uh, informal you may like his style you may not like his style but certainly the content itself is is i find extremely valuable and 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 it just makes sense i mean that i think that's the main thing for me around gap selling and, and, and Keenan himself is that it, it just makes sense to me as a, as a seller. The other, I mentioned Challenger as well. Um, uh, there's a lady over at Challenger Inc. called Jen Allen, 
uh, I think she is their chief evangelist, I think is her title. Um, and she does a lot of uh, podcasts and um, webinars. She, she, she writes um, as well, uh, you know, various blogs and things, which are extremely useful. And I think having read both Challenger books, as I said before, I, I like the academic nature of, of both the Challenger sale and the Challenger customer. Uh, but Jen makes that a little bit more translatable. She makes it sort of usable, I think, in, in, in everyday sales. And the third one, and, and this is this is somebody that I've not I've not been able to get quite as much uh, into what she does um, as the others, not yet at least, is uh, Beck Holland. Um, and she does most of her content under the brand of Flip the Script. Um, and she's definitely, I found her stuff really, really useful. Just explaining how do buyers think about stuff when they get flooded with, you know, 100 emails a day, when they get cold calls, what are they thinking? You know, how are they responding? And which I think is extremely valuable information because, um, you know, as I said, we've been talking right the way through about how, you know, uh, buyers are, have changed the way that they think about things and how they they approach making these decisions. Um, and it's really useful insight that she's gained through her, her own, you know, efforts directly and, and through the, the clients that she works with uh, in, in her business. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've certainly come across all three and uh, I would I would recommend them as well. Um, although I haven't read Gab Selling, I have followed his content, Gillian's yeah. content, and um, yeah, definitely makes sense. Right. And the way he describes it is uh, is really compelling. It's been really good to have you on the show. Russell. Um, and um, how can our viewers and listeners learn more about you or get in touch if they wish? I think the, the best way, the easiest way is, is contact me on, on LinkedIn, uh, Russell Palmer. I'm, I'm at Conica Minolta, as you, you mentioned early, uh, earlier on, and uh, quite happy. I, I do connect with most people, uh, but I have noticed that uh, as LinkedIn becomes much more of a channel for, for prospecting, that uh, obviously you probably find the same thing that uh, flooded with people that sort of say, hey, great to connect with you. And don't, you know, we we're talking about value before. Don't, you know, don't offer me any value at all other than I'd like to be connected to your network. So, uh, but yeah, I, I will, I'm, I'm pretty good at, um, at responding to people and, and connecting to people on, on, on LinkedIn. Uh, so, so they can be find, find me there. Thank you, Russell, for taking time to come onto the show. I, I learned a lot. I know our viewers and listeners will do so. Uh, so thank you very much for doing so. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure, Moeda. It was uh, it was a really great conversation. And, and I think that uh, I, I followed your content just to big you up a little bit as well. I followed your content. I think you've come, you've got some great insight. And I certainly learn a lot, lot from those two. So thanks very much for that. Thank you. That's very kind, very kind. And uh, yeah, so, um, and this is Moed Amin signing out now. And, uh, you know, if you have any requests actually for particular topics that you would like us to cover, whether that's me that covers it or whether we bring in a, a specialist in this area, then do leave a note in the comment section. You're free to be able to do so or hit me up on LinkedIn uh, and uh, make your request there. So until the next episode, thank you very much, everyone.